I'm delighted to announce that the National Association for Primary Education has exclusively released a video from its Primary Education Summit, Visions for the Future. This video, recorded by me, Mark Taylor, and Al Kingsley, talks about creating digital strategies for schools. This video is available for you to watch now at educationonfire.com forward slash blog, which I really hope gives you a taster of some of the amazing content that was available as part of that Primary Education Summit. That's educationonfire.com forward slash blog. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. I think the thing that I love the most about the conversations that we have are the very different ways people are showing up to support children in the way that they feel works best for them. It might be a teacher in the classroom, it might be a parent, it might be an author, it might be someone who's created a community or a membership. And today I'm delighted to be chatting to Kayla Taylor. Now, she's an author who has taken her personal experiences and put them into a book called The Canaries Among Us. Now, this is a raw and honest exploration of the everyday lives of children challenged by learning difficulties, anxiety and bullying. Now, Kayla blends science and poignant storytelling to create this necessary, timely and stigma-tackling resource for everyone interested in child well-being. This book is a lifeline for those who learn and think differently. Canaries Among Us explores one of the most widespread threats to children, a lack of acceptance. This heart-rendering expose offers both a candid view into the ways unique children are mistreated and a searing indictment of society's tendency to re-victimise people in their times of greatest need. So I hope this conversation and the book itself is something which can support you in however you are supporting children in your life. So this is my conversation with Kayla Taylor talking about her book, Canaries Among Us. Hi, Kayla. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Fire podcast. There are so many different ways and avenues that people are supporting children. And I think everybody is incredibly important in the way that they're actually doing it. And it's always great to chat to authors and people who've got experiences to share and kind of in insights that are actually helping people in a way which isn't necessarily just that direct conversation as some of us might have when we're actually within a classroom. And I think understanding there are different ways to get help and support and understand Understanding and build a community around your life is, is incredibly important. So yeah, thank you so much for being here, first of all. Mark, thanks for having me. I'm honored. So Canaries Among Us, tell us where did the inspiration from that come from? What, what, what is it that kind of sort of kick-started that idea and, and make you want to produce it? Right. Well, really, the book was born out of need, or I would say emotion over deliberation. I never intended to be a writer. My background is actually in business strategy, finance, investing, um, pretty cerebral topics. Not that writing isn't cerebral, but I have never thought of myself as a creative. Um, but then I had, my family had a very difficult experience that involved bullying and learning differences and anxiety among other things, all highly stigmatized topics. And I was finding a dearth of information. I was having a hard time finding firsthand accounts. I think it's very hard for people to speak about these issues in the moment while they're living them. And um, even off the paper, uh, in real life, people were having a hard time having conversations with me. Um, I think some of them thought I was a bit odd that I was uh, willing to speak so loudly 
um, and you know, for me, I tend to solve problems by research and by understanding and by speaking with people I, I trust, people who are more informed than I am, hopefully. And I was having a hard time doing that because when I was trying to speak, uh, well, there would be people who wrote books, you know, PhDs and topics, and they were great experts, though they often didn't have the lived experience, but often they're also caught in ivory towers and not accessible to the general parents. And then when I tried to speak with administrators um, and teachers, I found that um, a lot of them obviously are amazing people. Anybody who goes into education, you know, I, I does it because they care about children. Uh, in America, I'm guessing it's pretty similar where you are. Um, they're not doing it for the money. Teachers are grossly underpaid. But they're also often under-resourced, not just with materials in the schools, but also with information. And so I was having a really hard time getting the information I needed. So I spent a lot of time journaling just to get my thoughts onto paper so I didn't feel like I was batty. And then I spent a lot of time researching and writing notes. And I often found those conflate. You know, for example, I would one night write a really emotive journal entry about something very difficult that happened to my child. For example, you know, anxiety attack at school. And then the next day I'd be reading a research paper and um, they completely related, obviously. And so the writing process created meaning for me. And then several years later, when I got my kids uh, to better footing, um, I realized something that I had made a big mistake. I had assumed I had felt all alone, deep in a dark hole is how it felt. And then when I could peek out of that hole, I looked around and I saw so many other families dealing with the exact same issues. And what really struck me is they too all felt so alone. But I could see from this new vantage point that they were all right next to each other. And I started sharing journal entries or pieces of research. And after a while, several of them suggested I write a book. And I balked <laughs> at first, because again, I don't see myself as a writer. But then I saw this extreme need and I felt like I almost had a somewhat of a moral obligation to pay it forward because there's so much I would have done had someone spoken freely and honestly and shared resources from me when I was deep in, in, in my dark hole. And um, I, <laughs> I, I wanted to do that for other people. I didn't want to be a hypocrite, right? I, I wanted to be the person I wish I had had for myself. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And do you get any sort of, I guess, feedback or understanding of, of the people that have read it? And like you say, the fact that they might be sort of almost stood next to each other, but not necessarily know that they had that shared experience. Do you get a sense of sometimes that you know that there's been a connection or a kind of a an opportunity for them to kind of sort of share in some way or another? Oh, yes. I get people crying. I get people texting me out of nowhere saying, how did you know? I thought I was all alone. Um, the, the response from parents is very emotional. Um, and the response from administrators and teachers is very positive. I mean, positive is a hard word when you're talking about these difficult topics, but it is very constructive as well. I, I say, I hear people say, I am giving this to my whole teaching staff. Um, I am giving this to every, you know, every administrator in my school. Um, I had one woman text me out of nowhere who drives um, the special ed bus in her neighborhood. And she had uh, been diagnosed with ADHD, I think later in life and had felt like she had been really misunderstood and mistreated in school. And she ha now has a 
daughter in her 20s who had a similar experience. And so this bus driver texted me to say that she was handing the book to every single person on her bus route. Um, I think, you know, in her own way, she wants other people to know they're not alone. And I think I think that sort of collective feeling is is so incredibly important. But I think also it kind of sort of dispels that idea of of what learning is, certainly within the education system itself. And the fact that, you know, we're talking about real people, real lives and real struggles at a, at a, at a, at a level, no matter who you are, there's something going on in your life, which you may need help and support, or at least the understanding from the people around you. And, and it's only then that sort of the, the formal education sort of in inverted commas can then be a, um, a place where you feel safe and, and able to take that sort of next step forward. The, the kind of ignoring the fact that there's life going on um, just doesn't help anybody. And it just seems to me that this book just enables you to kind of first and foremost realize this is about me and everything that I need in life. And that's an integral part of what that my learning journey is going to be for, in that sort of more formal setting. Right. I mean, I was raised in the generation, and I'm guessing you were too, where we went to school to learn how to read, write, and do arithmetic. Mm-hmm. Right. And there was no understanding of child development, trauma, children's emotional state. And I think we are now learning that it's very important to understand where children are coming from, because they, if it all feel um, unsafe or not accepted or not included or demeaned in any way, uh, their brain literally fires. So, you know, the limbic system um, is in charge of our emotions. And when people feel threatened or misunderstood, their amygdala triggers, and which releases a whole amount of stress hormones and a lot of other things that increase heart rate, respiratory rate, but literally cause, you know, what we call the fight or flight or free um, states. And children can't learn when they're in that state. Um, one of my children literally feels the brain is frozen. So if we don't create this environment that allows children to be exactly, you know, safe in exactly who they are, they're never going to learn. Yeah, absolutely. And what is it that you ultimately would like people to take away when when they read the book or when they have it? Is it a sense of there's there's someone that knows them, like you said, in terms of that connection? Is it having a friend? Is it having a, a somewhere to take that next step if you need that support? What's your kind of sort of real sort of focus from that point of view? My immediate goal was to help people in similar situations feel less alone and also to provide them the resources and the research that uh, can be helpful in towards ad- supporting and advocating for children. Um, I spent, you know, I was a big nerd, I think, you know, I alluded to earlier, who solves problems by researching and trying to understand and exploring. So I did years and years and years of research. I mean, I was the person who read as many self-help books as I could read. I went to the footnotes, read, you know, paid $29.95 for the medical journal articles for one tidbit of information. Um, I really read a lot and I wanted to package that in a way that's accessible um, because, you know, reading all those journal articles is not (laughs) fun and is quite time consuming. (laughs) So I tried to present it in a way that it's just very digestible, you know, the headlines. I often feel, I don't know how you feel, but, you know, you can read a whole self-help book, 300 pages. And at the end, I think, gosh, I could have summarized that in five pages or even five sentences, right? So that's what I tried to do for my readers. My book is primarily a story, 
but you know tidbits of information are laced throughout to help yeah i think i think that's a really kind of astute thing in terms of understanding that when you kind of package things in a certain way like you say this book is on one particular area and it's going to take you 300 pages into one aspect that might help you in your life but it kind of has to look a certain way because it needs to be packaged in a certain way and needs to be published in a certain way. And like you say, you can sort of dispel right. it down and you can kind of give it that focus. I think about that so often, you know, people talk about the power of now and the understanding of living in the moment and, and so many of the things that actually don't support us in our life, which can be, you know, you can like say you could read a hundred self-help books, but so much of it just comes down to the kind of the the understanding of the fact that where are we now what are we doing can we just take ourselves into the moment is it just a question of kind of being able to bring life back into what we essentially know already because i think that's where so much of the anxieties and things come from is the fact that we believe everything is out there and we have an innate understanding of who we are where we're from what we're brought up to do what we want to do where our life should be from a purely instinctual natural way and so much of mm -hmm. what we're experiencing around that is the opposite of that but when we kind of like you say that community feel again when you realize that there are so many people around you that empathize support understand are in the same position then that gives you a kind of a real focus and a real kind of camaraderie with that but i think it also takes away like say the complexity of it and brings that simplicity of we're just kind of be the best that we can with the understanding of who we are and i think that then makes it say like you said makes it simpler from a, a starting point but also gives you that strength to then maybe take the next step i agree with that completely mark I, you know i think there's something to be said about it's easy to read something in a self-help book but it can be very hard to apply it to your life you know you close the book and you think okay i got it but then when a situation arises in the lived experience it's it's very difficult to relate the learnings with the, the practical living i'd also like to add that um you know life is a lot more complicated than one issue just you know covered in one book uh, especially for teachers in classrooms, they are dealing with a lot of issues at one moment. So, you know, my book dealt with learning differences and anxiety and bullying and then bias and victimization and isolation and trauma. And I also tried to cover themes of compassion and repair and belonging and dignity and justice. And, you know, there's no one book on that. And it's funny, I tried to talk about these things and the first people I approached with my book in the um, publishing world told me I was trying to do too much that I should focus just on bullying or just on learning differences or just on anxiety. And they also said, um, you know, this either needs to have facts and data, you know, and be a self-help book, or it needs to be a personal story. And to be honest, all of that bothered me a bit, um, but, you know, partially because as a parent, and I think teachers and educators, we crave information. We need the story to make it relevant, but we also want to know it's grounded in fact and research. So I don't know, I, I thought dumbing it down to make it fit on a certain shelf in a bookstore didn't make sense. I also felt that covering just one topic isn't what I needed to do. Those books are already out there, but I was trying to cover the conflation of them. Um, so, you know, 45% of kids with learning differences report being bullied each year, and 29% of kids with learning differences have an anxiety disorder. So to isolate, isolate them or silo them 
really doesn't do justice to what's happening. And what I wanted to explore is how confusing and conflating is is when all these things come together. I literally felt like my brain was a bowl full of noodles, all intertwined and confused. And I just didn't know what to do with that. And But the more I studied, the more I researched, the more actually I found that the learnings in different areas were com completely consistent with one another. So for example, if you study bullying and if you study compassion and if you study trauma, like they're actually, the lessons learned in a lot of areas are very similar. And so by exploring all of them and being honest about the emotion of them and interlaying the facts, I was able after a while, I felt like those noodles were more more how they start out you know when they get come out of the machine or when you hand cut them they're, they were all in a line rather than jumbled up and that was that created a lot of peace for me and i wanted to share that with other people yeah that makes so much sense and i, and I think that like you said the complexity also is the reality because it's not kind of like you know this is just me being bullied and this is me struggling from a diversity standpoint like you say that they, they all come together and if you want to if you want to speak to me and i want to feel understood then you have to understand all of me because all of that comes at the same time and i think you're right that idea of silos or dumbing down in such a way that we can only cope with one thing at a time um it sort of detracts from the reality of what people were feeling and from that like you say i don't think you're actually speaking to people because they're like well that's not the world that i'm living in because that's just not the reality like you say because so many of these things all go hand in hand Right. They're all intertwined, for sure. So how you said in, in terms of the book actually being um, sort of story led, how did you come about sort of would like to say from those journal entries and the understanding of what people wanted in and the like say from what people said from a publishing point of view, how did you sort of end up where you are as a, as a finished article? A lot of it was taking advice from friends and people I trusted. To be honest, what I really wanted was to share the information um, because there is a lot of information and the studies are 50 years old. And it was just shocking to me as I was reading the research that these things aren't more generally understood. But I had one friend in particular who said, I'm so tired of people telling me what to do. I'm so tired of the prescriptions. I need a story. And I really trust this woman. So that was my launching point. And for those that haven't read it, Take us through what that story is. What are people going to um, experience? And obviously, you don't want to give away everything in terms of no. them not wanting to read it, but but kind of, you know, take, take them on that path. Right. So it opens with me picking up my child at school, which seems like a really innocuous day, just like any other. And um, my daughter is late. Her whole class is late. And she ends up being released. She ends up grabbing my hand. And as we walk away, she says, sorry i'm late mom uh, the teacher had to keep us after to talk about kindness uh, some kids created an i hate hannah club and she said this really matter-of-factly like a reporter um, but hannah is my child hannah was the exact person telling me this and my heart sunk um, but i really I, you know i realized i needed to stay calm uh, as again as i've kind of mentioned my my mo is to go in facts. So I started asking questions and then I realized, oh my gosh, I've been hearing about things for a while. I'd assumed that there was one girl in particular, um, but actually, you know, a few in a group who had been disruptive all year, but I had assumed that their behavior was indiscriminate. And the more I started connecting dots with the stories I've been told, um, you know, perhaps it started that way, but it was 
becoming very clear, especially within I Hate Canna Club, that the behavior was now targeted towards my child in particular. So that's how the story starts. And it starts with trying to work with a school. The teacher was highly empathic, but she worked in an, in an administration um, which very much felt like it was worried about its reputation more than our particular situation. And of course, the more um, asking around, I learned of these things happen in environments, right, that allow them. And the school wanted to portray this image of having zero bullying, no tolerance, absolutely no bullying. But of course, bullying happens everywhere, especially with kids. It's even, you know, a developmentally expected, right? They're, they're pushing around, they're trying to find where their power is, they're probably having problems at home, they're bringing them to school. So it's not surprising that bullying happens. But what was very difficult is when the school wouldn't acknowledge bullying. And then um, the head of school, you know, did things like actually told the head teacher that she wasn't allowed to talk to me about the bullying. Any email communication had to go through him first. Um, so he completely took the power away from the teacher as well. So that's the environment I was working in. And unfortunately, as I asked around, that's not totally unheard of. Um, you know, it's not always the head of school, but I think people have a really hard time addressing bullying, either because they don't know how to address it, they don't know how to identify when it's happening, it makes them feel uncomfortable, you know, people don't, it, their own uh, nervous system, their own amygdala gets activated in difficult situations. So to feel comfortable themselves, they shut down the idea that anything bad is happening here. There's a whole host of reasons, but um, I basically started trying to explore how is it that bullying is so obviously wrong? Everybody would agree with that, but our school is having such a hard time addressing it. And so that's when I did things like studied even things like compassion and empathy. You know, a lot of the great research came out after World War II um, with little kids who grew up during the Holocaust and just didn't understand how what was what happened to them could have been happening. So those kids then grew up into social scientists who I now have learned a lot from. And I think that's a really, really important takeaway, that this real sense of that perception of what a school is and, and the reputation. And I mean, it certainly happens here in the UK as well. You know, we have sort of Ofsted grades and ratings and you want it to look a certain way because that means that parents will want to come to the school. And and the problem with that is, is it's it's doing it from an organisational point of view rather mm -hmm. than the child point of view. And as soon as that happens everybody loses because the child doesn't get what they need and also that sense of learning together you know learning together as a teacher and a pupil learning together as an organization and how those relationships work because like you said there can't be anywhere in the world that has no bullying even if it's just a comment or whether it's physical or whether it's a group of people or one person you know school workplace community it must and does happen much more than you believe it does and so to kind of sweep it under the carpet because that's the right thing to say or to do um is never going to work in any shape or form but it, it takes sometimes like say that kind of brave person to just to turn around and say okay well this is what we'd like to achieve but let's forget about that because we're going to do the right thing we're going to have the right conversations we're going to create the right environment and i think the reality is is that the end goal as it were or what you wanted to achieve is probably where you're going to get anyway but it starts by like say creating the environment doing the right thing having those conversations because then everyone's on the same page and you're growing around what it is that you're trying to create 
um, for everybody. But that that takes a takes a leap of faith. But I think that's why it's great to hear these stories and it's great to hear these things happening because you can start to see how that works, but also how you can be part of that kind of I want to say new wave of of kind of brave schools or teachers or members of staff. But I think it's important to know that's probably where you are and what you're doing. And you're doing it for the greater good, despite of, like I say, that immediate kind of tick box or that immediate kind of um, reputation. Right, right. I mean, you want, you, hopefully we all want our work to be authentic, really, than about image. Actually, one of the researchers I studied said that he would much rather send his kids to school, a school that documented many cases of bullying than one that documented none. Um, because arguably the first one is really trying to be authentic and really understand and tackle the problem where the second one is just, you know, pulling the wool over the eyes. I think one of the biggest problems we have is there's generally a lack of understanding about what bullying is. So it's okay with you, Mark, I might say that, you know, I, I studied a lot of research and of course, different researchers have different opinions, but in general, they seem to hone in on the idea that bullying is the act of repeatedly and intentionally causing physical and or emotional harm to another person with less power. Um, so 20 to 30% of kids are believed to have experienced bullying, um, though it's much higher in marginalized groups. And sadly, most kids don't report it because A, they feel shame and they're embarrassed to tell people, or they're concerned that adults won't respond in a way that helps them. So the more we can learn about bullying, I think, the more we can really help children and create the kind of environments that we talk about in, uh, creating and have it all be authentically true. And that really does sort of, yeah, br brings it all into focus, doesn't it? And uh, as we sort of mentioned there before. And in terms of, of the, the books being in school, like saying people giving them out, what does that impact look like? Is it about like say the compassion the understanding the sharing amongst staff is it about um directly supporting the children through it what where do you sort of see that that sort of impact working the most i think it's as simple as you know we can have textbooks we can go to seminars but when you hear a real life story about how a child was impacted i think our hearts open and we maybe consider new ways i've had a lot of people tell me that they've um, reconsidered their own biases. They've reconsidered their own ways of thinking um, based on the story of just one little girl. Um, and of course, this little girl represents a lot of children. Like I said, 20 to 30% of kids experience bullying. But I, I think it's more just about opening hearts primarily and then minds. And I, and I think that's the, I think that especially from a school standpoint, that makes a big difference, doesn't it? Is the fact that so much of what you learn in school is about stuff and about Mm -hmm. things which you have to learn for an exam or a test or whatever and the idea of like say this kind of human elements that you we're all growing into especially as children that they're, they're kind of subjects and things which sort of do around it which I cannot I understand to some extent but I think like I say when you have a sense of I fully um, empathize I fully kind of get a sense of that is me or that could be me because I'm seeing that happening somewhere, then like you say, it then becomes a reality and it's all about then the community that you're living in. And from that point of view, you can really then, 
I, I, I guess it's a way of taking it into real life because it is reality at that point. And that's where the best learning and the best teaching comes from. It's based on, you know, what the children in your environment are learning and experiencing. And that might be going out into the community and practically, you know, experiencing it with organizations and shops and schools. But it's also about the fact that these children are experiencing this particular thing. And I know about that and I can identify with that and the way I'm going to react and model my behavior is going to look very different because it's it's real life and it's happening in in, in my immediate vicinity right exactly i think if you you know if you, uh educators are looking for something more practical it's helpful to understand um that one in five children learn differently to the extent that in the united states you know they actually are designated with disabilities and accommodations need to be made um we can have a whole other conversation if just learning differently means that you should be diagnosed. Um, I, I actually don't believe so. I think it's more empowering just to acknowledge the many ways children learn and understand and, and bring their their thoughts to this world. Um, but I think the problem we have is that mo while most teachers know they need to have, that growth mindsets are helpful, that it's important to honor the dignity of each individual. They're not given the tools to understand and identify these different children that learn differently. So, you know, children who learn differently, who are highly capable, um, you know, they only get diagnoses if their classroom performance is less than their, in, their capability, their intelligence. So these are often very intelligent children who just don't happen to learn given you know some very old school protocols um, but there when it doesn't work it can be frustrating for all involved and often you know lack of understanding breeds judgment so these kids are considered lazy and stupid or purposefully um, willfully disobedient when often that's not what's happening at all these are highly capable kids who are just highly misunderstood there is a great report that was um, produced by a group, uh, two groups called Understood and NCLD. The Gates Foundation actually sponsored much of the work. It's called Forward Together. And it shows how uh, we are actually really not supporting our teachers in the way we should. So only 17% of teachers feel very well prepared to teach students with even just mild to moderate learning differences. As a result, they feel overwhelmed and under, under supported, uh, understandably. Um, and you know, graduate school programs uh, don't teach these skills as well, how to both identify and then support children. So one in three teachers uh, consider learning differences or attention issues as laziness. One in four believe learning differences can be outgrown when often it, it's physiological. The brain is wired a little bit differently, often in beautiful, amazing ways. We can go through, uh, if you'd like, a lot of the amazing traits that children who learn differently have and how that has benefited our history and our world and, and our current communities today. Um, one in four also believe ADD and ADHD is a result of bad parenting. So we're judging the kids and we're judging the parents. And of course, the kids and the parents are frustrated, so they're judging the, the teachers. And nobody wins with this lack of understanding. So actually, if anybody's interested, I highly recommend that report I mentioned forward together. It, it, it doesn't have the story like what I offered, but it offers a lot of data to show um, how important it is that we provide the teachers with the resources they need to support children, all children. Yeah, and, and I think that's really the key. And I think the part of the problem, like I said, is training. You know, so many people just don't know 
how to interact in a way that's going to be most supportive for the people that they're, that they're teaching and in, in, in their class. But also, of course, they're also teaching to something which is already predetermined. You know, it has to mm-hmm. look like this. It's this is the curriculum. We have to do it by this time. This is when you need to finish this subject. This is when we need none of which takes all of those things that you spoke about um, into into account. Because actually, if you have more flexibility and you had a different way of going about it, like you say, you can actually then share and support and celebrate what may be a different version of what that class would look like, given the, the, the opportunity to scope and actually then sort of go into the world that could be created and the learning that could be covered with like say with with a, with a group of children who've got so much um, diversity to be able to offer and then everybody wins absolutely you know you hit on a few topics uh, right there you talked about the many ways uh, children learn so 40 years ago dr howard gardner promoted this idea of the theory of multiple intelligences which showed um, that kids learn different ways and if you if you can adjust, if if the administration will allow you to adjust your classroom just enough, then you can meet a child where they are and their mastery of the knowledge can go up to something like, I forget the exact numbers, but like 40% of the classroom to 90% of the classroom. Mm-hmm. Also, the emphasis on timing um, is has been shown to really not be correlated with intelligence at all, especially when you consider that a lot of kids when they get timed, they get anxious, so their brain freezes, so they can't possibly show what they know. But look at how we time almost everything, every standardized test, every measure of intelligence, um, when really, I mean, how quickly you can regurgitate something, is that really a sign of intelligence? I would think how deeply you understand something would be a better sign. Um, Definitely, and and also, like I say, for for those of us who are older and you're looking to solve a problem it's not about i need to do this in the next five minutes it's about i need to find the best way of doing it and you research it you talk about it you come together in groups you collaborate and hopefully then you come up with something which you can then produce and like I say that's nowhere near the, the same conversation we're having in schools and and i'm and i'm i'm kind of interested as we're sort of going through those kind of philosophies because if you have a child that's in your school in your class that's in a wheelchair then you have a ramp you have a way of supporting them in a way that enables them to be part of their part of the class the best you possibly can do you think the world is changing now to um probably not fast enough but that we understand that no matter what the differences are and what the child needs we're able to make those allowances or do you think it's still just too marginalized I I think both. We are making changes. I think we still have a hard time validating and understanding differences that we can't readily see. You mentioned a wheelchair, so we can all immediately understand um, the needs there. Maybe not wholly, but, uh, and of course, every person in a wheelchair is not the same and their needs aren't all the same. But you know, there are very few ramps, I'm in air quotes, for children who learn differently, even though oftentimes the accommodations are are very low cost or non-cost um, and are easy to implement. Uh, there's just a lack of understanding. I think, ironically, COVID might have helped. So in the United States, there was a lot of mostly learning online and parents could see firsthand how teaching protocols were or were not working for their children. So I think they are better equipped now to advocate for their children. 
Um, and hopefully, you know, parents just do this in a way that is supportive of teachers as well, because uh, teachers aren't the bad guys here. They're, like I said, I, I think they have not been given the tools and understanding they need to support the wide variety of learners. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think, I think there are two parts to that. I think one, like you said, people have realized that learning in different ways can have a big impact and can be supportive you know those children who were um obviously learning at home and being remote suddenly finding that actually as long as they were able to do it in their way they were being more successful in whatever you deem successful to be because you're not surrounded by a lot of hustle and bustle in school you could focus you could do it a little bit more in your own time certainly here in the UK um, some lessons were live but some were just kind of you know by this time can we have covered this sort of thing and then that gives you much more flexibility and I think there are lots of parents who suddenly realize that actually my child is really thriving in this way and the flip side, of course, is, is that a lot of people then, because of the lack of socialization, that made a difference as well. But I think mm-hmm. it, op- it opened that door to actually there are other ways and they do make a difference. That's probably the first point. And then I think the slightly harder point is, is that a lot of us thought, wow, the whole world's going to change now because we've seen it makes a difference for so many people. But because we're getting back to normality um it needs to go back to where it was with a little bit of change but not with we could actually redesign everything and make it a big difference but of course no one wants to do that because it costs money it changes a system which is like a tanker which takes so long to do but hopefully somewhere in the middle ground there for those parents that feel like they have an option to make a difference even if it's having a conversation with a member of staff or if it's the fact that maybe there's a different school or there's an online school or there's a different way of going about it you do have some choice and there are options out there. But like you say, it's how you go about doing that given your own circumstances, which and I imagine there's probably only a small percentage of people who can do that or maybe want to do that. But there is that option. And I guess as that grows, then like you say, a lot of these things that we're coming across maybe will change over time. Right. I, you know, I actually think changing schools is very difficult to do. Sometimes there's only one school in an area or parents can't afford other options. And so they're somewhat stuck. But fortunately, change can start with one person, one teacher who shows compassion and curiosity rather than judgment towards a child that isn't learning can change that whole child's trajectory for life. Um, you know, rather than seeing that child as lazy or stupid or problematic, disordered, dysfunctional, you know, with deficits, instead to just get curious about what interests that child, what are the strengths, can we lean into those? Uh, And in so doing, that child feels validated and like their dignity isn't being stripped from them. Um, They feel seen and heard and, you know, that one effort can make a huge difference. I found in my personal experience, it didn't even need to be the most experienced teacher. Often, like I write about in the book, there's an example of one teacher who's young, she's a teacher's aide, but she's compassionate and she's caring and she's kind and she made all the difference. Yeah, I love that. And it's interesting because that's the main thing that comes up on this podcast the most is that what people remember about their school experiences or or their or teachers that they remember is not the one that taught them how to do maths best or English best or science best. And they might have actually instilled a real kind of interest in that particular subject. But so often it's just about this is the person who saw me. This is the person who understood me. This is the person who made me realize that I was a 
a person and we were interacting albeit like you say member of staff and pupil but we were we were two human beings that actually were coming together and that person saw me and was able to support me to be myself which just then opened like say the floodgates in terms of I have something to give. I have something to learn. I have somewhere to be, which is sort of as close to home, as it were, in terms of that sort of inner understanding of what learning's all about. And that makes all the difference. And I, th- I think it's such an incredibly important thing for, for people to realise. And, and it's and it's really is, for me, the two sides of the coin, which I think I've come to realise, having done this podcast now since 2016, is there are some things you can change and some things you can't. And I think what you're doing with the book enables people to say, look, there's a way here it can be different. This is an experience. This is something we can share. This is a way we can change the story and the narrative if possible. And sometimes it's wholesale in terms of, you know, there's a whole different structure that we can do. We wish the education was different. The times were different. How you access it might be different. And then the flip side of that is it, like you say, it's about that one conversation or that one small thing you do to one person, which changes that person's life and their person's perspective on who they are. And the ripple effect of that is immeasurable, but right. it does make a difference. And 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 at the end of the day, that's all you can do. You you, you might be trying to preach to change, like you say, the way the entire system works, but what you can do is have that conversation, which will make the difference. And yet, and I guess you have to do both or understand that those are the two sides of that coin. Right. You know, psychologists who have supported and studied children in extremely adverse traumatic situations have noted that often it just takes one person to help that child succeed. And, you know, when I when I think about people who uh, learn differently or think differently, um, you know, I wonder if they had that. So, you know, people on the autism spectrum, for example, include Sir Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, Charles Darwin, Marie Curie, Bobby Fischer, Andy Warhol, Emily Dixon, Elon Musk, I, I, I could go on. Um, there are also many other kids with autism right now, uh, likely in, in, well, I think the incidence has gone from believed to be one in 60 to one in 40. So in almost every classroom or every other classroom, um, not all of those children will grow up to be Einsteins, right? But they definitely won't grow up to be their best selves if we demean them and make them feel less than or don't honor their individual way of being. Um, but if we can support them in who they are and validate them and see them as a whole person, we can. You know, like we all know people with Obviously, not all people with autism are the same, <laughs> but on in on average, people with autism are known to have trouble with social skills, but they also notice patterns more readily than others. They tend to be more honest and direct. They often have higher focus. Um, they're more aware of their senses and the way sounds and touches and smells integrate in the world. They often have a higher concern for justice and fairness, which I think we can all agree the world needs more of these days. Um, <laughs> so to say, to dismiss a child because maybe they don't behave with their peers as you would like means you're missing so much of that child's humanity, um, which is tragic. I mean, that that alone is sad. Um, but also the world misses out um, because we've taken a person and we've basically pulled them out of mainstream society and told them that worthy. And even if they don't grow up to be an Einstein, we're definitely missing out on a lot of Einsteins because we've demeaned them at a, at a young age. But even if they don't grow up to be an Einstein, Einstein, they were a wholly worthy person that we have dismissed. And I've used autism as an example. I can talk about dyslexia. I could talk about ADHD. I could talk about 
other differences, neurological differences in the exact same way. But we would get to the same point, And that is that when we pathologize children for the, the thing they have a hardest time with and don't recognize their strengths, not only does that child miss out, but the entire world misses out. By the way, along those lines, do you know half, uh, this stuff isn't studied much, but um, two studies were done in the United States on prisons, and they found that half of the inmates in both studies were dyslexic. And I think similar studies have been done about ADHD. So there's an argument to be made that when we don't support kids when they're young, they end up feeling worthless. They get anxiety and mental health issues, physical health issues. They drop out of school, they become truant, and then they end up in our jails, which is very expensive versus if we spend a little time and money earlier in life, uh, we could have completely different outcomes. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I mean, there's a whole different podcast there, isn't there, about all of the, all of that that we, we know as a society in the world that doing things differently within our schools to support children to be themselves would help them like you say whether it's not going into the into the criminal system whether it's about supporting social mobility whether it's about supporting education so that it, it get, gets them into the workforce in a way which is more supportive with the skills that they need rather than the old school idea of what education i mean that all of those things and like i say and would cost a lot more money and be much more beneficial to so many people but i think what you said just before that in terms of just seeing everyone for who they are and enabling them to come together and then being celebrated as part of the the best person that they can and what they bring to the world as we all bring something which is very individual without all the labels and without all the boxes being ticked that they sort of we sort of seem to be at at the moment if we start from that just this isn't a person and let's let's find out who we are connected and together and, and and what your talents are and what your struggles are and how we can help support you best would um would be be so so incredibly important and i know part of what you do is actually pointing people with resources and like you've mentioned some of the some of the research and things as well what would you sort of do or where would you suggest people go to sort of get some more of that information should they feel they need some, some more help Right. So at the, at the back of my book, I actually list a lot of resources. And I also have a website, KaylaTaylorWrites.com, that lists a lot of the resources that I found most helpful. I actually have a whole chapter um, <laughs> that I'm offering on bullying prevention in case it's interesting to people, because I, I did not find one good resource on bullying. Um, and so I tried to summarize it all in one place there. Um, if you don't mind, you everything you were just saying, I, I, it made me think about why I named my book Canaries Among Us. Um, so, uh, if it's if you'll indulge me, I'll explain. Uh, so, uh, you're probably I realized early in my journey that my child is highly sensitive, which it actually has been shown to be um, a neurological difference in brains. And uh, Elaine Aaron and several scientists have studied it. If anybody's interested, but. Um, these children are often called canaries, and this is because um, at the up until the turn of the century, the late 1900s, you probably know miners often took canaries down into coal mines, 
not just because they had a beautiful song, but also because they too are highly sensitive in their case to toxins in the air. So when the birds stopped singing, the miners knew that they needed to flee the mine or they would likely be poisoned by carbon monoxide. So I love this analogy because it shows how this trade of the canaries didn't just benefit the canary, but it benefited everybody associated with the canary. And the great irony here is, you know, these days in modern times, when we talk about kids and adults who are sensitive, it's usually in a very pejorative sense, right? We're saying they're weak, they're overly em emotional, they're not strong, they're pathetic. There's not much good that is said. But I think if we can remind ourselves that if you look at the whole being and don't try and judge people by biases about what is acceptable and what is not, if you look at the entire depth of our humanity, um, we all benefit, not just the individual we're talking about, but all of humanity benefits. Yeah, well, that, well that's beautiful. And I think that's a, a perfect place for us to to round up and thank you so much for sharing all those insights and 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 thanks for thanks for creating the book because I, th I think it's it's obviously helping so many people and will continue to help so many more people as well so just remind us once more again about your website and where people can can get hold of it right the book is canaries among us the website is kayla taylor writes with an s.com and it should be available at most of uh, your bookstores um especially online at Amazon. We have bookshop.org in the United States, which is an independent bookstore if, if people like that option. Um, but I definitely know I, a lot of people have told me they're buying from Amazon in the UK. Fantastic. Kayla, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time, but also appreciate um, just all the effort and and the understanding and, and compassion um, that obviously has affected you and your family, but also how it's affecting everybody else. So yeah, so thank you so much indeed. Well, thank you, Mark. I could say the same thing. You've started this whole podcast out of empathy and compassion and to support others. So thank you very much for all you're doing. Thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community. With over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.